Police Department. I would like to report a crime. The comedian Lauren Lodudice hacked into my brain and wrote a book called Inside Melania. What I know about Melania Trump by impersonating her. What does she know about me besides for stepping into my skin for the last three years and her impersonation? You can find the book that me and Donald do not want you to read at www.insidemelania.com. You're listening to a podcast from RadioMisfits.com. This is episode 127 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. On this show, my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren LaGiudice. Some quick updates. We've been creating bi-monthly episodes of Reconcile the Isle for over a year now. The show was designed to have seasons. We'd be on for a few months, then off for a few months. And those few months we were supposed to be off was when we were on tour. But because of COVID, we never went on tour. And because these episodes are helpful to everyone, especially in this political climate, I kept creating them. But it's been a year, over a year, so we need a break. Uh, We're going to take a little sojourn and then we'll be back after March with new episodes and obviously a new co-host. Although I'm sure Melania is going to want to update us from time to time. Ooh, I'll Skype you for my private island. In the interim, consider listening to some of the other episodes that you might not have gotten a chance to. We have guests like Diana Valentine, who is an oracle, to Sema Sagir, who is a research scientist, to Mona Shake and Neil Rubenstein, who are my fellow degenerate comedians. They offer a wide range of perspectives to help you navigate this time when we need to have more difficult conversations so we can heal the divide in this country. You will not be disappointed, and you'll probably laugh a little. Today, we're going to speak with special guest Sammy Rangel of Life After Hate. But first, let's go to our Stupid People segment. For those of you who are new here, it's the part of the podcast where we salute stupidity, because what unites us across all boundaries, what unites the world, is that we hate stupid people. My dad rants about the stupidest person he's seen that week, and we rate their assholeness in rectums. So here's our segment, Stupid People with my dad, Charles Ljudice Jr. When you call these gigantic companies uh, like Verizon or somebody, and um, you call and you get an automated operator, you know, um, dial one if you're having uh, your home phone sort of bad, if you're two if your cell phone is bad, three, uh, if you want billing information, four, if you want to change it, and then you hit whatever it is, or uh, you're having technical difficulties, you hit the number, and then they say, oh, your call is important to us. If, you, if you're lucky, that's the next prompt. Please wait online. Or sometimes they go to another set of uh, things, you know? 
if Mike and you stay online and you wait online and you wait online. As a matter of fact, today I was clean shaven. I, I called Verizon and by the time I got the real operator, a real human being to speak to, I grew this beard, okay? <laughs> and you keep waiting and you keep getting that message. Please hold, your call is very important to us. Please hold. And then they play like the worst music. They play the music that's in the background in porn films, okay? <laughs> And then finally, after 20 minutes, and I cursed out the first four letters in the whole phone book, <laughs> all the names and everything, finally you get somebody. And then I wind up getting a nasty service representative <laughs> or, or whatever their job is. And they say, this phone call may be recorded for uh, quality insure, uh, assurance. Okay. So... She starts getting nasty with me, the, the girl I'm talking to. So I says, are you sure this call is being recorded? Because I want everybody to know what a fucking moron you are, okay? <laughs> and I want to speak to a supervisor. Well, needless to say, she didn't give me a supervisor. And you know what? If you think I was going to call back and wait on, on, on by the time, I would have looked like a Jehovah's <laughs> Witness or something. I would have looked like I was Moses taking 20 million Jews through the desert or the Red Sea, my beard would have been so long by the time I would have got another real person to talk to. And hopefully, what's the chance that that person was going to be have an actual brain and understand English and, and help me? You know, so I think if somebody has a big, big company, like you're a CEO or something, put real people on to answer the calls. And let it be known, take out advertisement. And if, if you're like Sprint, and within a couple of months, you'll be ahead of Verizon and AT&T together, no matter what you are. If you just put real people on that have a half a brain, you know, like, you know, at least they have to be at least as smart as the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, okay? <laughs> At least then you'll get more business and you could drive these big international uh, conglomerates out of business. Okay? All right. Okay. And how many rectums do we give companies for putting people who don't have no training and have no That's a bleeding so rectum. That's so <laughs> aggravating. Okay? That's a, <laughs> our first bleeding rectum. <laughs> a bleeding hemorrhoid. That's a, a new classification. Okay? Wow. People are so stupid. Later on in this episode, we'll bring you more from my dad. This episode is brought to you by TheMelaniaShow.com. Get your Trump off soap to get those orange stains off. Available at TheMelaniaShow.com. Let's get to our interview with special guest Sammy Rangel of Life After Hate. He was a guest in a two-part series in episodes 109 and 112, and we needed to have him back because a lot has gone on since then. Sammy Rangel is an author, social worker, peace activist, speaker, trainer, and father. His autobiography, Four Bears, The Myths of Forgiveness, chronicles his life from the physical and sexual abuse he endured as a child to his path of self-destruction that culminated in a 15 and a half year prison sentence. In 2012, Sammy founded Formers Anonymous, a national self-help group based on the 12-step model for people addicted to street life and violence. In May 2015, he participated in the 10X Danubia Conference. Balance on the Edge, held in Budapest, where he spoke about the power of forgiveness. In 2017, he was honored in a special tribute to everyday heroes in the global campaign against violent extremism. 
Sammy holds a Master of Social Work from Loyola University, Chicago. He previously served as a program director for a youth outreach program in his hometown of Racine for 16 years. He is also a second-degree black belt, practices mixed martial arts, and is a singer on a Native American drum. He is the co-founder and executive director of the organization Life After Hate, which is committed to helping people leave the violent far right to connect with humanity and lead compassionate lives. If you're wondering exactly how you can talk to someone who has dug their heels into far right ideology, you'll want to hear this episode. We actually evaluate a recording of me trying to have one of these conversations with my dad. And Sammy talks about how we can do this right. And you can also sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. And my co-host, Melania Trump, are you sure you can't join us today for the interview? And I see you have your Secret Service agent with you. What's his name? Johnson Smith? At your service. Uh, I mean, her service. I mean, you. This is confusing. Oh, wow. Well, how is Donald handling all this? He's banging through the walls to tear out the copper wire. He did the same thing to Trump Taj Mahal Casino when it went bankrupt. And the Trump Marina Casino when it went bankrupt. And Trump University, uh, but that wasn't real place. No wire to steal. What's he need all that copper for? To pay for his ticket to Madagascar. Why is he going to Madagascar? They don't have an extradition treaty. Wow, it seems like Donald has lost it. Oh, we're at tantrum alert 10. He's throwing ketchup packets against the wall. Pouring chicken grease into White House pool. And he has left no toilets unclogged. So it's safe to say his mood is dark. I put pacifier in every room. And for first time in our marriage, it hasn't worked. Strange. I put a pacifier in his mouth on Air Force One for four years to calm him down. Worked every time. Huh, that's a visual. Well, thank you, Melania and Secret Service Agent Johnson Smith. Do you have a code name? Yeah, it's Jesse Snedden. Ah, at DJ Doger on Twitter and Instagram. Got it. All right, let's get to the interview with Sammy Rangel of Life After Hate. All right, so welcome back, Sammy Rangel, to Reconcile the Isle. I'm excited to be here. I can't <laughs> wait to hear what you guys talk about. So... <laughs> As we spoke about, so much has happened in the last few months, and I felt like we really needed to touch base about um, all of the quickly evolving things going on all over the place. So how has everything changed in your work since the pandemic started? Well, that's the... I'm just trying to figure out where to start. (laughs) We were luckily, technology-wise, already a virtual company. So we were not put off by that. But the I think the biggest change is a lot of our supporters felt that they needed to shift gears to deal with COVID. And because they couldn't make the correlation between how these far-right groups are exploiting COVID, even talking about how to weaponize COVID and how to use COVID to accelerate tipping points in vulnerable communities, right? And so we've been trying to tell our supporters, like, listen, yes, you have this pandemic, but on top of that pandemic, you have people who have already figured out how to use it to terrorize in a different way. And it's also, as you know, and everyone else knows, it's become a highly politicized issue, you know, to wear a mask, not to wear a mask. And it's, you might as well be talking Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter type of culture war there, you know, and you can see the dividing line in the counties, you know, where the red side of the county is anti-mask 
mask because they're not sheep and they're not going to be told by government. And the rest of us are just living in fear as if there's no basis to be concerned, you know, and then on the blue side, you know, people trying to adhere, but still being highly affected by COVID, right, at higher rates. And I think the other thing that we have seen is, of course, the the social effects of isolation. So we're very afraid of what's happening behind closed doors now that people can't go out. You know, you can assume sexual violence, physical violence, partner violence, depression. And I, I don't really want to detract from your show today, but we've recently lost one of our own members, you know, to um, depression, you know, and it's just been, it's, we recognize that on top of daily life, on top of a pandemic, the work that we're doing in this space, it is accelerated. It hasn't gone away. It's actually multiplied. It's like germs finding the right atmosphere to thrive. And this is the right atmosphere to thrive. Yeah, th- there's so much I want to go into here because what we had um, on an uh, American history professor named Daniel Holtz, who right as this was happening, and she some of her work includes understanding white supremacy, and she's like, these groups are going to hide behind their computers, and you need to talk to your family. Like, they're going to be hard at work because you're on your computer all day. Did that happen as badly as she thought it might? Absolutely. You know, I mean, these groups, while some are, while this movement remains highly unsophisticated if you ask me, right? Like they have found the most sophisticated ways of living in that unsophisticated space. Me, what do I mean by that? Like it is not difficult to set up a dark room on the web, right? It's not difficult to put out, you know, encrypted messages to protect yourself. Like, like she was saying, people are hiding behind pixels online and creating personas that are that often don't match their online personality to their offline personality like most cases like when we have heard from our partners when you find out who this big persona was online it doesn't match who we just met in real person right and so you might have this puny human talking like the incredible hulk and then when you get behind the wizard of Oz curtain you realize it's just a small person you know who has learned to kind of exaggerate very effectively create a script very effectively you know and so yeah, it's it has been exacerbated, but it has been capitalized. These groups capitalize any vulnerabilities that our communities will have. These groups will capitalize on. They're very quick to do that. And what do you mean by vulnerabilities? And like, what are they doing? with those. So one of the most insidious sites that I was privy to see showed a community like online community discussion around how to weaponize COVID. And again, here's the unsophisticated nature of the process, but very highly effective, right? These groups had two perspectives. One, if you are diagnosed with COVID, get on public transportation in a low-income neighborhood and ride it all day. Go to a Jewish community center who has an open-door policy and meet and greet and love everyone that you encounter, you know? And so that's one version. Another version was ride through a neighborhood that you know is like is has like a lot of tension and just fire your gun as you drive through the neighborhood like just fire it in the air like you don't you're not aiming at anyone you're just trying to kick off some sort of incendiary response to this right and so this is kind of what i mean right and so it's just the um or even here by where i live the i live here in racine which is next to kenosha who has made national headlines international headlines for the shooting that led to protesting and on day two a militia group took it upon themselves 
to come to Kenosha and portray themselves as an extension of law enforcement, but were just in, in the same violation as the protesters were violating curfew, now using weapons, you know, op- carrying weapons openly that eventually led to two people being killed and one person being maimed, you know. And so they're capitalizing on these and there's, they see them as opportunities, right, which is pretty ingenious. I mean, if you have a mission, you're, you're finding the positive in your mission and anything that happens. And that's what I mean. So here our communities are vulnerable and these groups have already found a way to capitalize on how to push that towards the tipping point. Accelerism is what we would call it. Yeah. And um, yes, which I, I made a joke. I know they get very touchy about that word. So I, I definitely mm-hmm. included that in my book inside Melania. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that they would read it, but anyway, made sure. me uh, feel like you can do something with comedy. Sure. But so many people, I tell them, like when all of the unrest was going on, I told so many people, there are white supremacists behind the rioting and the violence. And people looked at me like I was crazy. And they think I'm exaggerating. And so can you tell us? <laughs> I mean, I'm losing my mind here. It's like people just don't understand and it's not being covered. Can you then try to inform us from the very basic level, like one, what's happening and two, how common it is? Well, you know, you can hide right out in the open, right? When these events are happening. Law enforcement, for whatever reason, I'm not here to determine what they're capable of or not capable of in each community, but law enforcement doesn't seem to really have a response that can quell any of this, right? And so people know that, knowing that, you can have all kinds of people coming into your midst. We're all wearing masks. You know, you don't know who my identity is. I can show up to any place I want. You don't know my intentions, but you have enough of an emotional appeal in these crowds that no one is really censoring behavior around them. You know, there were people, I did see people who were discouraging, you know, certain acts, but then you saw people who were encouraging acts, right? And who had a very real message about why this needed to happen. You mean like people within the white supremacy movement? You Well, to be honest, you don't know who you're talking to. However, if you step back, if you're like more of an observer trying to understand who's in the crowd, you do see it. You do see that uh, here's an agitator who really seems to be playing on the vulnerabilities of this, but does not align with the views of what the protests are really about. It clearly becomes like a personal agenda or some private agenda that other people are getting swept away in. And the other side, I did witness white supremacists getting police escorted through through the crowds. Like it was, I couldn't understand. If you're shooting protesters with paintballs, law enforcement shooting the protesters with paintballs to, to get them out of a crowd, why does this subset of the group get an armed escort through the crowd? They showed up as agitators as well, and people had certain opinions of that. We have heard of evidence where white supremacists are going and trying to create, again, these hostile reactions, violent reactions, looting reactions, the destruction. They, they more or less feel like, well, you know, let's help them kill themselves. Let's help them kill each other. Let's give the ammunition to the, to the media that they need to condemn these 
these protesters, right? And so they push those. I have seen piles of bricks show up. Yes, I heard that. Yep. Yeah, I have seen incendiary devices just show up. I have seen, you know, like fireworks just show up, right? Like it's, it is, and nobody knows where they've come from. They're just in the space all of a sudden, right? And there's no one laying claim. And so it's like, here, take this, right? And so you, you do have to be concerned. And again, everyone is disguised. So you don't know who amongst you is who and what, but it is, it, there is evidence that there has been people infiltrating. I think, again, from that accelerationist perspective of let's push this crowd to a tipping point, because that tipping point, if you think about it, it, the rioting that is happening out of the protest is a distraction from the main issues, right? And what better way to get the rest of the world off of the main subject and focused into, and this, I think you mentioned something about how I have mentioned people are getting radicalized and don't even know it. Yes. Right. And so this is a great strategy towards radicalizing your viewing audience against protesting. Right. So all of a sudden you find yourself having picked a side on this culture war because you don't agree with what is happening, but you don't recognize how that has been exploited to get you to shift your attention. Right. And so now you start to adopt ideas and you don't know what ideology they're coming from. It just sounds like the right thing to follow. So like so people are basically so you're saying groups are actually dropping off piles of bricks, weapons, fireworks into certain locations with the idea that someone's going to pick them up and use them. Or maybe some of the people that they plant later on to come up and use them. Yeah, I mean, that is, you can't put, I mean, anyone who would support mass shootings is not going to have any moral qualms. You know, I don't know if you remember that case in Texas where mom killed her two daughters and the white supremacy groups came out in droves honoring her as a martyr because she killed her daughters because they were interracially dating and they felt that she was the example. That was the example of someone who's true to their cause, right? You're talking about people who have no moral qualms with immoral acts of great extent and so it is not above it is not above them it is a part of their playbook you know and they're stealing from all kinds of playbooks including isis which is how, you know, ISIS has done, for lack of a better term, a great job marketing online, right? Like their whole platform is online. White supremacy groups are now stealing from the ISIS playbooks to bring here to the U.S. to help, you know, one, improve their online presence, their online messaging, their online image, their offline image, their offline messaging. And it has become extremely political, you know, like, and so this is where I think people are being recruited and don't know that they're being recruited because on the political end of this scheme, like most people that I'm close with and observing friends of what we're doing through our work, we recognize more and more individuals are losing people that were close to them that have survived other battles. But this battle has been successful at driving a very sharp wedge between, you know, long held relationships. I mean, parents, you know, spouses, siblings, cousins, best friends. And this issue has created like a bigger divide than ever before. More and more people have come to us as I feel like I have to choose a side and I have to leave people behind. Wild. So it's so that and that's what I'm seeing is they're the recruiting right now isn't like we ended last time we spoke, we ended it on talking about how mentioning that people are recruited without it was radicalized without even realizing it. So it feels like now that's happening. And same people who would say, if you would say like that woman who shot those two, two, two daughters, they would say that is terrible. That is wrong. And yet they say things that are along the lines of white nationalist thinking. But it's understandable. 
relatable. I can see why she did it, right? Like we get to a point like where people are actually, yeah, but, right? Like they, they get into this, yeah, but. Yes, I can see how that's wrong, but this is the reason why it's okay. This very same people who are against protesting and rioting, the very same people, let's say it's the same person against protesting and rioting, were the same people for the militia showing up in Kenosha. Yeah, but, right? Here's the exception to rational thinking, right? And while they're saying, while they can understand their rationalizations, they can't understand the rationalizations of other people who are who are basically saying the exact same thing in the exact same spirit. What's happening is that these groups, and I think, you know, like cases like where Steve Bannon allegedly helped create this culture war, what has happened is that this culture war, to you, Joe Citizen, Mary Citizen, it do, you don't know that it's actually a race war. So when you say all lives matter, you don't actually know, most people don't actually know that that is a racial war that you have now engaged with. They don't see it in that way, right? And so you can spoon feed the ideology without having to sell the ideology, right? So however you consume it, we just need you to consume it by whatever name you want to call it, because that then supports and emboldens the groups that are doing the work, right? A small percentage of the men and women in these groups will actually carry out the actual violence. Mm -hmm. It's the majority majority of those people who embolden those small minority groups. It's when they can get follower after follower to jump on the bandwagon and support their cause and not know that they're supporting their cause. There was, I don't know if you recently saw the article of these kids in, I think it was Arizona or Texas, who were asked to write about a hero. And they were writing about Kyle Rittenhouse out of Kenosha, who shot the two protesters. Now, mind you, the protesters were chasing this kid. That's the clip they show, the protesters chasing this kid. What they don't want to connect is that Kyle Rittenhouse had already killed somebody, shot him in the back and in the head while he was laying on the ground. That's why those protesters were chasing him, right? And so what they talk about, and, and even what our, our top administrator talked about is, yeah, this mob was chasing this kid. Let's forget that there was a dead body. They were trying to capture someone who had just shot and killed somebody. But what you're hearing is the protest, this mob of rioters was chasing chasing this innocent kid who drove from out of state, carrying a full assault weapon, underage kid, running down the street, fearing for his life. That's the story you're hearing. And so you start to buy, well, yeah, look at those. You've already starting to become vulnerable to the fact that all protesters are bad. And so now you see a mob of protesters chasing an armed kid. Those protests, some of them were armed, but you're not hearing about the 20, 30 seconds before that where the kid shot and killed somebody. The mob doesn't know what he did, doesn't understand what he did. So if there's, if he was self-defense, so nobody really understands that unless you were there. But what some people witnessed was somebody shot standing over someone, shooting them in the back and then shooting them in the head and then taking off running. Those witnesses tried to chase that kid to grab him from what I believe was law enforcement and then, you know, apprehend him and, and turn him over. And instead, it's been painted for vulnerable people in this society. I would say naive people in this society who will believe what is coming from the top offices that this was an innocent kid being chased and he was running in fear for his life. Never mind now, that he shot and killed somebody. Has that kid been charged? He has been charged. But remember what I started out by saying. Kids in Arizona and Texas who are not a part of this protesting have written about him as a hero, that he was a hero to them, right? We have more people coming out saying, well, you know, he was there to protect property and life, you know? That's why it was okay for him to be out armed from another state, not even from the... And there were those same protesters, in many ways, are the same people that we would be facing off with who would have been upset about the sit-ins in the 1960s, who would have been upset about people getting on the bus. They would have been just as angry then as they are now. They're the same quality of people, right? They they have 
they have chosen a side and a lot of them don't realize they've been persuaded to take those sides. It's, it seems even now too, like people are so, they hear this, the word racism a lot. And so they're so like, everyone just like, no, it, you can't even say they're like, that is racist. This is racism because people are like, no, I'm sick. No, it's not. It's not. I don't want to hear it. Or that was just one bad apple. Like you can't talk to people about, or I see people also using the word, like, especially some people who are finding out like that racism exists. They like, you know, are like using the word a lot, like to, to every, not, not to, and that it's not like necessarily always like a person who is like, they think of a racist as some guy from the South with overalls and like chewing straw, but it's, it's not how this works. And can you explain, I guess, first of all, like how it works and how often like racist thinking permeates even the nicest of people and also how to talk to people about it. So we have to talk about an ideology, right? So some I have been asked outright by a lot of interviews, is Trump a racist, right? Like that's, and everyone wants me to say that. Like anytime I'm interviewed, like that's the tagline they want me to say, right? And I really avoid those conversations. But I've done some reflection through both my professional and personal life to try to understand this. I think Trump is his, a lot of his language to me would subscribe to nationalist views, right? Like this nationalism perspective. That nationalism perspective just, so happens to also resonate with the white supremacy ideology, the theory behind white supremacy ideology, right? It resonates with that. So I don't ever speak to if that was his intention or not. All I can say is that by now we all recognize that that languaging lines up with the way white supremacists view the world. And so white supremacists have come out and publicly said, we support him because he, finally someone is speaking our language. And they have even gone as far to say is that he is restoring a narrative that used to exist. And when you ask, well, when did it exist? It Well, it all predates civil rights movement, right? It's the language. And, you know, we've heard from this administration how civil rights may, may single-handedly be the worst thing to happen to American values. We recently are hearing in the paper about this administration wanting to ban un-American curricula. So anything to talk about social injustice or racist history or racial injustice, that's to be banned from school. This administration is also talking about canceling funding for un-American programs that talk about basically anything to do with white supremacy or racism. You know, it's it's as if the way we are talking about it has become political or covered with politics so that it, the racial undertones of it are masked, which means that it appeals to, to Jane Doe, John Doe, who don't want to necessarily feel that they have subscribed to white supremacy or weight or racism, right? So they, and we saw this in Charlottesville when the, the makeover and the cleanup of this group, right? Everyone was clean cut, button up shirts, shorts, you know, young, you know, they were articulate, educated, you know, the rebranding has always been a part of the ideology of this movement. And they finally have done a good job to make it mainstream. Because some people in my life, I hear the things that they say, and I'm like, they are distinctly being radicalized. Like they know not what they do or say at this point. They And if you said anything, and they would say like, the killing of George Floyd was wrong. And yet but. all of the protest is wrong too. Like anyone, I mean, you can't, it's undeniable. You see someone sitting on someone's neck and you go, oh, that's fucked up. Like most people I think would say, except extreme extreme would say that's wrong. And yet 
they're saying things that are super scary. <laughs> like, well, how do we I, resolve I, that? Yeah. I find it that it is um, extremely egregious to try to tell people how to voice themselves, right? Like, people have a tolerance and they say, if you were to protest in this series of ways, I would be okay with that because that's what makes you comfortable. And what we know on the other side of things is that we have done those things. We have put our hands in the air. We have laid on the ground, you know, and we still find ourselves shot. We still find ourselves dead. We have for the last 50 or 60 years turned the other cheek, approached this space with nonviolence as Martin Luther King and other leaders like him asked us to do because that was a powerful weapon. And I personally still believe that. But what they don't want to see is you use your voice. You now use the resources that you have. We've been imposed upon in many ways for decades. And this imposition that they feel makes them uncomfortable, right? Like it's when it benefits you, then it's okay for you to say or dictate or try to dictate how other people respond. But that's only because it benefits you for that. You know, like I was a little upset when I saw people the next day after the damage in Kenosha going over there and trying to paint pictures on the damaged walls and stuff. And I'm like, you know, there's a time for that, but the country needs to see the damage before you try to beautify it. We haven't even had the conversation and we're already trying to cover it up. This is not a space for beauty. This is a representation of long historic injustice, traumatic experiences, dissonance, disconnection, people being ignored, outright ignored. Like it's too soon to try to put a flower on it. You cannot have reconciliation without meaningful dialogue, without accountability. And so we shouldn't be trying to get get to the restoration piece before we've actually had accountability. You know, our leadership needs to, to stop abdicating from its responsibility to face this community and have this conversation. What people want us to do quietly is cover up the depth of the hurt, the depth of the wound, the depth of the wrong of this so that they don't have to face it. But we have to face it. There's, that's the only way we can have accountability and ultimately reconciliation of any story. So then some of the damage that's been done you're saying is not only obviously like there's white supremacist groups trying to to make things worse but some of it the violence comes from the decades long centuries long oppression you is, know, is that yeah you you know i have a long history of violence yeah i had i i essentially had 27 years well you know my first years first 11 years i was subjected to incredible amounts of violence as a child and then as i got older and into the streets more i became extremely violent and most of my adult life until 30 was very violent and i have always said, and I'll say it again, I felt that violence was the only language that I ever got anyone to hear, right? And so in many ways, and I'm not, I am not in any way advocating for this today. I do not advocate for violence. I live a completely violent-free, peaceful lifestyle. I advocate for peaceful social change, right? But we also have, just like we take time to understand why white supremacists do what they do so that we can intervene, so that we can get involved, so we can be a part of their change process, we as a community need to understand why protesters or people who have, who have turned into those activists who are burning buildings down and whatever, we need to understand their process as well. Right now, what we're doing as a country is simply judging it. We're not trying to understand or evaluate it. And we're only evaluating from a moral judgment stance. We're not evaluating what is happening so that we can actually understand the violence and the looting and the rioting, the burning. All of that is a symptom, which is a distraction from the root cause, what is underneath all the civil 
civil unrest. So whether it's a peaceful protest or riots, you know, coming out of that protest, those are not the actual problems. They are drawing attention to what should be the problems. But what has happened instead, people who have these ulterior motives, most of them who are on that far right, are trying to distract away from the real reasons we're here together and focus you on that as a recruiting tool. Look at these animals, because it would, it's incomprehensible to think that victims would ever want to fight back right? Like, it's incomprehensible. Like, you know, look at these animals. They won't stay subjugated and abused quietly, you know? And the rest of society who is kind of vulnerable to that messaging doesn't really have an ulterior, an, an alternate message. What they're getting from media, news, you know, and others is this one-sided view, you know, of this is all it can mean and, and only what it can mean. Anything outside of that is un-American. And that has been the biggest spin by this administration in this latest culture war. As soon as you you have been declared un-American, good luck recovering from that. Like, you know, now that is the ultimate disgrace and you won't have a place in society. Although like the most American thing is to be a rebel rouser and to not take shit. I mean, what? You know, man, you know, when we talk to people about like Native Americans being here, you know, first, you know, like, okay, you have this stance, you yourself are a long line of immigrants. You know, if you were to say that, they say, yeah, but we conquered this land, therefore we're entitled to it. And so aside from your very poignant fact, it no longer holds any validity with us because if they were strong enough to hold it, they would have held it. And since they weren't, we're entitled to it. They dismiss any sense of accountability they or equality or, you know, just honesty, you know, any morality. Yeah. because they're in that power position now. And so they they intend to maintain that power position. Mm. For 50 years, we've been fighting for just a little bit of meat on the bone that you've given us. And now that we've gotten it, it is pissing people off who think that we should strictly only have the bone. No meat, just the bone, right? It, they still, in, in many ways, this group still owns most of the power and prestige in America. And the little bit that has been wrestled away from them has led to great resentment and grievances by these same groups who now want all of that back. And also they're outnumbered at this point, right? Or they're soon to be outnumbered. And What do numbers really mean when you have all the power, right? So I can hold off 10 people with a gun if none of them have a gun, right? Like it, the numbers don't really matter because what I'm trying to address as a social worker is like government implemented or sustained or supported policies or practices that basically make it okay for, you know, suppression, for being able to get away with kneeling on somebody's neck for eight minutes, nine minutes, you know, like it's, the issues are bigger than the numbers. And even after this administration changes over, we still have an an entire system that will be still in Washington, D.C. that doesn't get voted out in, you know, in this election or in four years. We still have to deal with that. And so we're dealing with a system that is inherent broken. This isn't about training. This isn't about, in many regards, this isn't about, you know, cultural competency. It's about policies that are knowingly in place that empower the kind of violence by, by you know, police, by government that allow for injustices to occur, that allow for large Confederate flags to still fly over your capital, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that these things are traumatic. Like, it's a bigger system that I'm looking to figure out a way in to do some changing at that level. Because on the street level is one thing. Yes, we've taken somebody off the streets and maybe we've, we've prevented a mass shooting or we prevented a, another attack. But that doesn't mean that the policies and procedures that are still in place are gone. So mm. while we're on the while we're on the street level, our eyes are also focused much higher up that mountain. Yeah. 
Yeah. Another thing I, I find amongst like perfectly nice white people is that they'll say like they'll point to because a person of color who might have been recruited to espouse some of this thinking, whether or not they know how extreme it is or not, and say, well, they're saying this. How do how do we have that conversation? God, you know, that is personally, that is a deeply troubling experience to watch some of these commercials or some of these people get on there. And I'm wondering, like, how could you do this? this to your own kind, to your own family, to your own people. But I have to take a step back and I recognize, man, for the lack, you know, to each his own, to each his own. You know, like if you support leadership that has said things about you and yours in this way, what can I say to you? You know, like you have a right to your beliefs, right? Yeah. But it is, it is concerning because I do think of people who are over identifying with their abusers. We see this a lot. Like I've learned through domestic violence that you don't want to make a victim feel like she's done something wrong by the choices that she's made under the conditions that she's in. So what we have to try to apply is understanding, like to try to understand understand that what she's facing and what she's going through has a direct effect on her, her cognizant abilities, her emotional abilities. There's a lot at stake for her. We just don't know, right? And so again, I think what you're exposed to the most, what has value to the most will have the most impact on your senses. And so you're, I'm often left wondering, why are these people like this? And it's probably, I typically feel like some act of desperation that maybe somebody used you and you didn't know you were being used to be poised and positioned. And so now they've exploited whatever help they've given you. And it's convinced you that this is the way to go. Others, I do have, I have had talks with other friends who are like, you know, Latinos or, you know, different races who are Republicans and they have very rational explanations. You know, they're like, well, I like his economic, you know, perspectives on these things or small business, you know, is this way they have. And, but it, I also, rec- I always ask, how do you reconcile the dissonance between that and the other disparities in the messaging to come out of an office. And some people say, well, as long as it benefits me in that way, I can dismiss all of that, right? All of that. So it's, it's, we all know like uh, there have been certain singers and rappers and artists who have done appalling things who still have a lot of fans, right? Mm-hmm. They dismiss all of that for the one thing they like out of this person. And I think that's some of what we see. Yeah. And so like I find white people, I in my world, I see white people use them as an excuse to think and say terrible things. And then if I say something like, oh, amongst some people I'm around, I'm like one of the only college educated or from a private college, prestigious college, and it creates a class difference. So then I'm like the like uppity white chick being like, no, that's racist, you know, calling, saying what's racist. And also, you know, that's not right. Always. I, so it's a real, how do you even talk about it? Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is 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 accurate. Like I've seen some of that. The I think the real issue here is that we have a tendency to globalize a situation and apply it to the whole world. Yeah. And we're fact finding, but only for the facts that align with our views. And then it's like, tell me what I want to hear, but don't bother me with the facts, right? And so mm-hmm. if if I see one person on all of these ads who breaks the mold of what everybody else is saying, then that's what I should listen to versus listening to the masses of people, mm-hmm. right? It's we all think from our perspective that we see everything there is to be seen. I mean, that is a that is a human condition, is a human flaw. You know, that what I see is really all there is to see. I do think people, I think inherently people know if they're doing something wrong, but the way criminality works is that the criminal learns to justify the action to justify the, the end result, mm-hmm. right? So they rationalize it. And so, but it's not like a criminal doesn't know that what he's doing is criminal. He pull wholeheartedly, cognizantly knows that what he is doing is illegal, is wrong, it hurts people. 
but his rationale has made it possible for his brain to embrace it. The Out of that criminal theory, it says people inherently want to see themselves as good. So they tell themselves stories despite their actions that make them appear good to themselves. So I think what you're, these groups of people that say, well, look, here's an example of somebody who doesn't fit that mold. You're, that proves you're wrong. They know that what they're saying is kind of, I think at the core, at the spirit of it is wrong, but they have found the justification, right? And it, But, you know, people can't stop eating cookies, much less stop eating, stop thinking about the way that these political issues, right? These things are preoccupying people to a fault right now. It's going to be very difficult for them to get out of their bubble. And since we're not listening, they're not exposed to the other messaging that might open up their eyes and they're not open to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, some positive. What are some uh, positive things that have happened um, in Kenosha and other places? I'm not sure if you guys were involved in Portland at all. Um, some of the work you're doing on the ground that you've seen some positive things happen. Well, I want people to know that when these bad things happen, it is also a tipping point for those members who are in support of these violent actions, right? Like a lot of them start to second guess their membership because they're not sure, you know, supporting the ideology is one thing, but actually becoming violent. So moving out of your head onto the streets is a very different experience, right? And so when these, when, you know, like when Charlotteville happened, when, when others, some of these mass shootings happened, we get a lot of calls from people who have been, who feel like they're now questioning whether or not they're actually willing to go this far. It's not that they don't support the ideology. It's their morally, the qualm is, am I willing to murder? Am I willing to, to directly be associated with murder? Right? So I think it's one thing to voice your support, you know, for an ideology, but can you reconcile voicing your support for someone? you know who murdered someone you know and so or being asked to murder someone and so we're there to receive that and thank goodness you know that's why we're important because we're really the only receptacle for this person at that time who is going to have a place to land with those doubts otherwise as you know in the public eye it's you're with us or against us and there's really no middle ground you know there's no safe place to talk about it Mm -hmm. we're either so condemning of a white supremacist today that there's no place for them to go or we're completely in alignment with them well we're the one group that is like here's a safe place to talk, man. We know we're not here to judge. We're not here to help you escape accountability either, but we'll get to that. We, we need to understand what we can do to help you. Like, let us hear what your concerns are. And you know, it's, it's a welcoming space in a very unwelcoming world. It's like a buoy in the middle of the ocean and you finally made it to it. And that's all you have to hang on to. Oftentimes we're, you know, we're the only place they can turn. So that's one. I think the other positive thing is that this has also brought more partnerships out. You know, people, people finally are, are starting to acknowledge that this is a major problem and they don't have the skills to deal with it. And so they're coming to us to ask, teach us. So right now we're rolling out a mental health training and a white supremacy 101 training. You know, we're teaching people what white supremacy looks like in the U.S. and then what to do about it if you're in this space, right? And so that's the first time that's happened in this country and people are coming at us in droves. We were just awarded a $750,000 grant from this administration and some of the efforts out of that grant will be doing those trainings statewide across the country to help practitioners and other NGOs, law enforcement, understand what they're facing and then how, what we're doing that's effective when we're doing this direct work. So partnerships have really grown under this climate as well. That's amazing that you got that grant considering. It's, we're, um, how would I put it? On this hand, I'm celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> On this hand, I live with extreme anxiety because 
we know that there is a risk that we may not see those funds. I mean, and we're, we're hoping, you know, it, obviously we had to have governmental support to get that grant. You know, it came from the same Department of Homeland Security that awarded us last time. We just need to make it to the point where the funding is coming in. You know, we're, I mean, yes, we've been awarded, but we've been there before. We're just hoping that we have, one, done enough work to redeem ourselves in this space, you know, at that level to say, you know, we're not really interfering with your personality, your character, your work. Like we have, we're focused on what we need to do on the ground. As you notice, we don't make a lot of waves. We don't, we yep. don't talk about it a lot. We're just busy doing the work. You know, we don't have any bad intentions here and we hope that it doesn't turn out like the last time, you know, and, but I'm holding my breath, you know, like yeah. literally holding my breath. I mean, I think what some people don't realize is that there are people who work for the government for years and they are kind of on the inside. Not every single person is a Appointed by the administration, and a lot of them have good hearts. I think that's what's. No, I tell you that is one hundred percent accurate. Mm -hmm. our, our biggest supporters over this time period has been Department of Homeland Security. They respect our boundaries. All they ever do for us and ever expect of us is to be good stewards. But what they do for us is the partnerships I've talked about. They have opened those doors at the state levels for us mm -hmm. to have to have an impact. Just because everybody wants to hear what we have to say now about this space, and since we have fully developed a good practice, like a best practice in this space. They want to know what that looks like. And we're saying, thank God, because we're not big enough to like to, to meet the need of this country. Like we need as many players on this platform as possible. And so they in many ways have opened up the doors to their coalitions of mental health providers, their networks of other NGOs or think tanks that are looking for more knowledge in this space, right? And have said, these guys are the go-to people when it comes to this type of topic. There are so many people who reached out to us after that travesty in the past and has said, we love you. We support your work. Two weeks later, after we lost our funding, we got invited to the UN for um, a humanitarian award, to accept a humanitarian award for our work that we're doing here in the US, mm. right? So we've never felt alone. We've never felt alone. And as you know, we went viral. And in many ways, our numbers are still progressively moving upwards in the number of referrals that we're getting. Yeah. That's great. Um, not to bring this down, but I did want to make sure to ask, where is QAnon in all of this? <laughs> Besides uh, being on their own planet. I mean, you know, you're talking about QAnon, but in many ways, we've also been introduced to this idea of incel, right? And so we have these two groups that are kind of making this, making this arrival on all our consciousness right now, right? And so we're looking at both of them. And we do see, like, especially like with these incel groups, we do see that even though when you look at an incel space, it's a very uh, diverse group of men in there, but they all adhere to the umbrella of that white supremacy, misogynistic, male dominance, male privilege perspective, right? And so we're always looking to see what is the big picture about these groups. And I mean, we, we're we not experts in that yet. It is fairly new. It is, but we're often being asked to intervene into a question. And so we have to take dives into these spaces to try to understand what these groups are really motivated by. I mean, two years ago, we weren't dealing with any incel cases. Today, I'm telling you, we're getting them routinely, right? And so we're also now starting to, you know, pay attention. We have been paying attention to Q on and that's where Dimitri comes in because he's he's really the one who's set out to, to understand 
and the ideologies mm-hmm. of these groups. And it's something we should be concerned with because it is, again, it's another opportunity for recruitment into this extreme line of thinking, this this positioning. We don't need people buying into any more conspiracy theories are alive and well and driving a lot of this radicalization process. You know, one more thing to worry about, one, you know, big state, you know, and cell yeah. phone towers. It's people are already vulnerable, man, you know, and especially under this pandemic. And again, this is just ideology that's pushing people to a tipping point, if you ask me. Yeah. And can you define a QAnon and incel just so if people don't know what they are, they know now? <laughs> no. In a brief, I guess. <laughs> so much to say. <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. Like, okay. Well, I guess I'll, I'll do it. In, okay. So the QAnon people, they have like a very intricate theory about like Donald being the savior of the world and all sorts of things being a deep state government conspiracy incel, um, much the same. And they're recruiting in record numbers during the pandemic through the online space. That's how they do. That's how they work. If that's problematic, let me know, Sam. No, it's it's not problematic. But it, I mean, look, at, let me show you something I got in the mail today. This here says... Joe Biden and the radical left are attacking our values. Their agendas are clear. I have no idea why this showed up in my mailbox, but it did, right? It's this mailer, right? It's anything that pushes. So to call the radical left, that is a false comparison. It's a, well, I know you are, but what am I kind of thing, right? But anything that pushes a conspiracy is exactly what these vulnerable populations are about. I mean, we can go back to Dylan Roof. I hate to say his name. Conspiracy theorists took taken offline and into the world, you know, and did his damage, right? They have this is QAnon is just one of many approaches that this space, this radical far right was taking and pushing people over the tipping point. And I think what's happened, here's what I think is I'm not trying to conflate anything here, but when you give access to groups of people who have known ties to like certain ideologies and certain hate groups, when you give them access, you give them the data that they can now hand over to these groups and then use that data to exploit vulnerable groups. Most people are saying that what how this administration won the office was by not by persuading people that were on one side or the other, but by persuading from the group in the middle, right? And so and they were able to do that with data that they were able to peel off of these big tech companies. And that data was used to say, well, here's what people are responding to. We do the same thing. We do this in our redirection. Here's what people respond. For example, in my hands as a social worker, I know that somebody, the data shows that when somebody is looking for hateful content online, they are 300 times more likely to respond to a well-crafted mental health ad than anybody else. That's data I can use for good. Mm -hmm. That's also data I can use for bad. I can corrupt my intentions with that data and use it to persuade vulnerable people over to my messaging, which is the blue line with law enforcement, blue lives matter. All of that was designed to move people from the middle. What, because what it's housed as is an American good value. But what they don't know that that was a, a line, a hook, line, and sinker from that far right perspective meant to recruit. So that recruitment, and they don't need you to be a white pride member. They need mm-hmm. you to uphold, they need you, they need mm-hmm. you to uphold the values that they profess our values. Yes. Yes. And I think most- QAnon is a part of that, part of that conspiracy theory that just fuels vulnerable people into these spaces as well. Mm. 
So I've been, I'll have a lot of fear about what's happening. And even like I go out, I do a Melania Trump impression and I've done public stunts as her and I was going to have a tour as her. And like some of my friends were like, I'm a little worried because I was going into the South and the Midwest and it only takes, and the schedule's online. I'm all over online. Everyone knows where I am. Uh, You'll know where I am when the show goes. I mean, do I, is that, and I've been a little bit scared myself now. Like I know people, there's people, some really crazy people out there you know I just you just don't know like people can misconstrue something I say it's usually some lighthearted fun but you know some things hit hard I, I should I be scared there are no depths that are unavoidable to ignorance this is put it mm-hmm. that way right and you're dealing with a, a climate that stems from a culture that where anything goes now anything perceived as un-american is i think is prime target for like what we saw here in kenosha what we saw in michigan what we're seeing in portland it's the systems that we're protesting about are showing that what we're protesting about groups. There's this villainization of people who are protesting for civil rights. Civil now protesting for civil rights is un-American. You know, free speech in regards to civil rights is un-American. You know, kneeling down in protest during you know the anthem is un-American. You know, like it's nothing. You will you do not have the same protections as the people who would attack you, mm-hmm. right? And who might physically attack you. I I do think you need to live in this space cautious not paranoid but very cautious maybe don't promote your messaging you know like where you're going to be so much like we really try to last minute it you know because like we're these guys are consistently saying hey they're going to be over here let's go say hi you know go shake his hand you know it's no friend of mine you know like i wouldn't know who you are you know and i do think you need to be cautious yes i mean i think it would be reckless to not be concerned and to not have measures put in place i don't live in fear but i'm also not oblivious to the precautions that i need to take i'm going to do my work just like you're going to do your work in the face of those threats but i do think you should protect yourself at all times what you are doing is drawing attention to yourself and you know it only takes one how many guys were involved in Pizzagate talking about QAnon right like it only takes one you know and so you need to be cautious and you know talk to a security team about how to protect yourself you know what can they do about your online messaging around your calendar and your schedules you know like you do have to protect yourself I would say I think one thing that helps me like helped me so far is that off I'm wearing like this tight white dress and Spanx and everything so I'm like looking all hot and so that's the one thing because they're like in their heads they're just like, oh, hot chick. And they're like, <laughs> they're like well, don't And then I'm like, hi, I'm Melania. And I'm doing all like this, Melania, doing all this stuff. And they're just so, they don't, and then they're like, wait, is she joking? Is this real? Like what's happening? And then they- Well, I'll tell you who isn't thinking that way, right? And it is those extremists, you know, like when you think about incels, they hate that image. They completely hate beautiful women, mm. right? They hate them. And they're the target, right? Because beautiful women select only the best males. And mm. since they're not a part of that, that hierarchy of best males, you know, you might as well be dead to them. You know, like they, there are people, and I and I want to make sure that our listeners recognize that while you do what you do, this is not a group to take lightly. You know, there are players on the ground whose only intention is to terrorize, is to murder you know, is to maim, you know, like that, that is what they live and breathe. And they're always trying to bring people to the front. There are people online pushing other people that they've recruited to the tipping point. I had a case not too long ago where adult males had pushed a 16 year old kid, suburban kid to the point where he was planning, you know, like a school incident. And it did come across law enforcement, law enforcement reached out to us after they said that this kid is like the nerdiest, smallest person you could imagine, but on 
online, he's got this really serious persona, mm. you know, and is talking about this school. And we found that it's not a credible threat, even though he's pushed the limits of the law mm. on this. Let's, can you talk with them? And so we started talking with this kid and they were right, man. This was a gentle spirited child, but who was exposed to these men who themselves weren't going to go offline with this, mm-hmm. but we're trying to push him to go offline with it and to have a school incident. Right. And so it's, there are people who are dead set on and, and intending to, to murder, maim, yeah, yeah. terrorize. So be you know, careful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sam. You know, this is what keeps me on TikTok. For instance, I don't like TikTok very much, um, but I stay because and try to persevere nonetheless, because there are like my communities on other parts of the internet are people who feel like they don't fit in. And I feel like there's those people like to give a space and a lot of TikToks, a lot of young people to give them a space where they can feel that like their feeling of outsiderness is okay and they're okay and they can be belong somewhere because it can be manipulated in such dark ways. Yeah. Yeah, because that sense of belonging is typically, in my opinion, the number one recruiting tool. Yeah. It will it will start with how we identify through TikTok or how we identify through this game or how we identify with each other through this medium, right? It's, it is always about that identity and the sense of belonging. And rarely is it about the white race and Jews. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, it, that may never come up and doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do everything but because then they know your alarm bells will go off. Wait a minute, but that's, but then they say everything but, yeah. So on this, I have a clip. We're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to, for those who listen to the podcast, and if you made it this far, you heard it already. We have our segment, Stupid People, where my dad and I rate the stupidity of humanity because this is a uniting factor for all of us. And, you know, I've talked about this before. My dad does not, and I do not agree politically at all. He's a Trumpster, and I, I do feel, because of social media, has been taught certain things which are are troubling. So we have a conversation which starts off a comment about reparations. And I try to like talk him off the ledge. And Sammy here has so generously agreed to tell me everything I did wrong. (laughs) All right. So um, we'll cut to this. And Sammy, just whenever you want to stop or talk in or whatever, or we can only watch whatever you want to do. And my dad's very funny. We look nothing alike. It's very, it's hysterical. Okay. All of these uh, people who are calling for reparations for slavery and all this other stuff, you know, things that happened 100 years ago and blah, blah, blah. Yet, like uh, you take like Michael Jordan and LeBron James, they will not say anything against the Communist uh, Republic of China where their sneakers are being made and they're making a million dollars off it and the people in China has uh, got those people in concentration camps making this stuff. What, um, I guess my question is, have they ever said I will not make a statement or how I mean they're just I, also all these executives and Nike are making millions oh yeah the, the guy the guy from they're, Nike. White, they're white you know and they're like look yeah, I'll get yeah. my payday like you know these oh, white yeah. guys are making money too. and everything yeah. we own like this, this this well this is made I paid for I had to pay money for this because it's not made it's made in the country this is made in the country too and I had to pay yeah. extra money because it's not made yeah. by a slave and that's like right. essentially and, what and it is the, 
the problem is you go into stores, you could check every piece of clothing on the rack yep. and not one thing is made in the USA. It's yep. a, so, I mean, we can't go around naked, you know, and we have to eat or we have to do this, but you have to be careful. Even, you know what I also don't like about the government, and I'm not talking Republican or Democrat because this is going on for years, and uh, people on both sides of the aisle are rat bastards because they're taking money under the table and shit. Yeah. Now you find a lot of stuff that says uh, distributed by so-and-so, and it gives their address, like distributed by Colgate, Palmer. Yeah, which is bullshit. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. It should be, ma- or it says manufactured. Manufactured, no manufactured means. I took a pair of shoelaces made by a six-year-old kid in China, and I added them to the sneakers, and I, yeah, could, uh, well, um, and and I, and I manufactured it. Yeah, There's so all, for you know, those who don't know, uh, my dad right here um, actually had a clothing factory, and my grandfather on 19th, 18th Street, 19th Street? East 17th. East 17th Street in uh, Union Square and Before everything was tripped off to China. So, like, my grandfather would know, too. Like, he could just tell that it was, like, shit tailoring. It was made somewhere that was not yeah. not, not yeah. quality control. And and he would say, you know, these things aren't really made in the U.S. They bring them to the U.S. and they add, like, a bow and they say made in the U.S. And, it, yeah. and it's bullshit. But the thing is, you have to be ready to pay more because, you know, guess what? When you have to pay people to live, it's going to be more. Like, right now, it's unsustainable. Like, we pay people zero and we pay people so little to make the products but that's not right because they're living in such shit conditions so that means if we're gonna like pay people a living wage I think we have to be ready to pay more and have less yes. why do you need 50 no. shirts just have 10 right but we have to pay more but that's not gonna give the American company the right to rip us off because they're putting made in America totally you know if it's yes. costing them two dollars you know and they're selling it for uh, two dollars they're making a hundred percent and it's the store now paid four dollars for it. They should, uh, you know, let them make their uh, whatever it is. They if they got to charge eight, they charge eight. Yeah. But like I was watching the show. There's a show on. Um, I think it's MSNBC. The Profit it's called. And uh, this fellow, uh, he's a millionaire or a billionaire, Marcus Lamone. And he uh, he'll go in. He's got a lot of different companies, and I guess people write to him that their business they're having trouble and stuff. And like he he was. I was just watching an episode the other day. Some brothers in California. And uh, how much does this T-shirt cost? Everything six dollars. What are you selling it for? Twenty nine fifty. You know, now that is a ripoff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the best part is they had their father was the printer had the screening operation. So you know they're getting the lowest price there because he's yeah, on yeah, the yeah. other end of the profit. You know what I'm trying to say? So instead of like if all these other companies that don't have their own operation, they got to pay somebody for so the other people have to make a profit. They're cutting those people out, which is perfect. That's that's okay. They started this business and they run in the other business. They have more yeah, responsibility. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you should be ripping people off. You know what I mean? Yes. It's it's like American yes. cars 40, 50 years ago. They, you know, you had uh, General Motors had five names. They had Chevy, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Buick, and Cadillac. And plus they had GMC trucks and stuff. I mean, there's no, they did away with Pontiac and Oldsmobile. You know what I mean? And even before Lee Iacocca, Chrysler, Dodge, they were making crappy cars because they had the market. Then yeah. Honda started coming in with cars and then Toyota and everybody and their cars were lasting longer and they were made better because the Japanese were putting in more pride because they had the job for life. And they also, I don't know what the Japanese business system is, but you know, over here, you know, you have unions that, you know, if a guy don't 
don't do his job, he still can't fly. It's the same thing like, and, and why should a teacher, this thing called tenure, and he can never get fired? So once he reaches that point, he don't have to do well, his job. Well, the other anymore. argument for tenure is, now I don't know enough about- I'm sure there's a good argument for it. Stuff, but like for college, for instance, your job is to write stuff, right? So you have to have the freedom to intellect, intellectual freedom to write- yeah what you think and you can't feel like you need to write to keep your job because then that's like the cat they think about the academy so i feel like tenure in cotton universities is essential because you have to like be able to give people the freedom to write then there's less and less of those jobs unfortunately um but i don't know what i think about high school because it's when i hear tenure i go but how would you be fine what do you what independent thinking are you doing are you writing for journals like you're just teaching yeah, but if an institution a college yeah or a business whatever it is was founded on a certain principle whether it's a, a religious principle or uh, or something else and then a guy's teaching there and he, he you know he follows the rules now he gets tenure and all of a sudden uh I'm, let's just say he's teaching at yeshiva university and all of a sudden he's uh, adopting uh you know mind conf you know what i mean and he's talking about something like and he's going anti-jewish all right he started becoming, well usually people are so vetted it's like not an easy process to be it would be very unusual from what I know for that to happen because you had so many years they like drag you through the mud and they really get to know you and so if you were secretly a neo-nazi I feel like they might have figured that out but I mean and then well then it brings like if you cross the line and you start like promoting the um, genocide of a group of people I mean that's like a dead that's like also like yeah right uh, yeah yeah so I'm, I'm just saying but you know even in a regular job you know what I mean uh you know where people can't get fired and stuff like uh, the, the v- Veterans Administration. You heard Grandpa tell the stories how we went and they, people just ignored them and stuff like yeah. that when they were working yeah. there and they couldn't get fired. And one guy threatened to kill Grandpa when he was about 88 years old. He was like six foot eight, 400 pounds. I mean, the guy could probably beat the shit out of Hulk Hogan and Andre yeah, the Giant. Yeah, yeah. So what is an 88-year-old diabetic guy going to do against him? All right? And he can't, couldn't be fired. You know, yeah. now they've changed that. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I get, I get the argument like people suck and you want to get rid of them because they, they just shouldn't be there right like if yeah. poison like one poisonous person could ruin a whole company that's like the that's the thing you have to get them out but yet also people are fired for stupid shit sometimes and you need to like be right. like, and unfair like sometimes they're har- sexually harassed and then they fire right. the woman you know like stuff like that happens no that's right that's right I mean I'm just bringing up some some points that there are some reasons that person should be fired for and there are other reasons that are, are foolish and they're not legitimate, you know? Yeah, and like, or even like you go into a store and like I say, I think you say this all the time, like you go into a store and you could tell who's not the owner. You know it's the owner because the owner cares. Like I remember going into a store and I was like, I don't, I was like getting a sandwich and the guy's like, oh, the cash machine doesn't work. I was like, I don't have cash or the credit card machine doesn't work. Yeah. I'm like, I don't have cash. I'm like, but I have cash. They're like, oh, I can't open the register easily. Yeah. Now, if that was the owner and I am sitting there yeah. like, here's cash. That would be, I mean, it just, you're not the owner. You are clearly not the owner because that is well, not that that's happened the problem. To me going, that happened to me going to City Field a few years ago. I'm on the line and uh, I get up and I hand my credit card and at the time it was I think $22 to park your car. Yeah. Oh, the credit uh, card machine's not working. Do you have a credit card? No, I don't. Oh, okay. So you, I guess you. I'm not getting that off this line. So I guess you're letting me in for free and I went in for free. Tw- yeah. Twice and that's that a, happened. And the thing is like though, I feel when you do give 
give a shit that people that you can shine and like that's what I tell I have a few apprentices and I got apprenticed through an, a, a program called Acadium and like when they care I'm like they, and I only hire people who care and I'm like you are like you have to understand that you care you have quality control and that is rare and you have to like yeah. have confidence that you have some, just the fact that you care is like puts you ahead of two like nine tenths of people oh yeah well that you can see that in business all the time when I was in sales like you know if somebody comes in and they're giving you like you know if they're in front of you not giving you a phone order on a phone yeah. order you could talk but you know you, you have to tell the truth because you know you can't if a guy says well I need tomatoes that are pink I don't need them too ripe you know and then you send the guy ripe tomatoes you're going to lose an order he's going to be pissed yeah, to see yeah, you and yeah, he's yeah. not going to buy from you for a week or two yeah. but like when the guys are funny and, and you'll say oh you got, any, you got any plum tomatoes or something yeah what do you got I got extra large I got pink I got a uh, medium color I got yeah. just need something full color like you know and then I would say come on come on I go out behind the counter out of the booth grab them you have to walk a half a block yep. it was long to the warehouse and show them look here I got this palette which one you want I'll make sure you get you want 50 boxes you don't want the, the 80 okay I'll make sure you get 50 off of this palette and I write it right a sign right on there I grab one of the guys say make sure put this on the side this is for so and so you know yep. and you make the sale if you just say the guys ah, forget about it so I mean if that happens to you 10 times a day it could mean a difference in you know maybe you're selling five to twenty thousand dollars worth of stuff more you know yeah. what I mean yeah and the money doesn't go in my pocket it goes in my boss my, you know when I was yeah. working yeah. but you know you got to have pride in what you're doing which yes I guess so I guess that, not much around today yes I guess that that is the stupid people who don't give a shit and don't take pride in what they do and so yeah. I, I would give those people I think that sentiment when people have that I give it a five out of five rectums that's yeah. terrible well you know what it's even like now I mean you, you pass people on the street you know they're hungry they're homeless they're this they're that whatever and you feel bad for them but I've been seeing all these things the last couple of years as a matter of fact John Stossel did a whole program on it and I've seen it on other uh, TV shows like there was a woman she was across the street from the bus uh, terminal the Port Authority on 38th Street in Manhattan and she's begging and stuff and they watched her and she's you know got a, like a blanket on the floor she's sitting on the cement and she's begging and this and that she's dressed in rags and then they you know somebody was following filming her she walks to the subway gets in the subway goes to Queens gets out of the subway walks yeah goes inside a brand new minivan with colored glasses comes out decked in high heels and a fur coat and then she meets up with like four of her girlfriends and they're going clubbing so you know what I remember a time I passed the guy or when we I was living in Howard Beach and then I ran out and I, I drove around I finally found the guy and I gave him a couple of dollars since I felt bad for myself I said what if that was Jesus that I didn't give the money to you know but now <laughs> I don't I don't feel like that no more you know well there's always been stories that people who are begging are secretly I mean you go to like when I moved to California when you go to Berkeley there's all these like rich kids from the hills come down to be like real with the people and they're yeah. like begging on the yeah. side of the road I mean there's all that I what I do is I because you don't know you don't want to like fund someone's drug habit I just right. I always get food from a restaurant I try to do one thing and that's give them food from a restaurant and I right. always say like I don't want to be like take my steak what if they can't they have a medical problem so I say I have some steak or I have some vegetable whatever and do you eat that would you like some and then yeah I no I understand like when I used to go to work I'd stop in the Dunkin Donuts in Hunts Point in the Bronx and somebody say oh man you got some money I said listen you want I'm not giving 
giving you money to go buy drugs or booze. If you're hungry, come in here now. And uh, sometimes they say no because they don't want the food. They want money. And if they did, I would tell the guy, all right, what do you want? You want an egg sandwich? You want uh, this or that? You want coffee? You want iced tea? You want whatever you want? And then that's it. Pay for it. And that's it. You know, I'm not giving him money to help further along his problem. I'll get put yeah. food in his belly, you know? Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. Or he could give, give money to like a, a soup kitchen or something or a homeless shelter. You know, it's a hard problem in the minute. And I just don't want to sit there and think about like, are you secretly rich or something? I just, you know, people yeah. are, I don't want to get, I just don't want to think that of people. I just want to like, if you need food, I'll give you a little food. And yeah. that's all I can well, do. You know what? At all, you don't always have something that you could give them. I'm not always walking around. Then I, you I, just I, I don't own a coffee truck <laughs> that I go to the construction site with. So, you know, I'm not yeah. going to give you money. So, you know, that's it. I mean, you know, I, mean I think one, here we get, see, Americans actually are much more sensitive than you even think. Like, so when you go to India, like when I was living in India, the people will come up to you with like a maimed hand. Like someone yeah. broke it. And they, like what they would do, these pimps have like, you know, they send out the kids uh, yeah. reportedly. And then they actually maimed the kids to get more money, which is so yeah. heartbreaking and terrible. Yeah. And like people, yeah. and once you're there for long enough and you see like people who've been there for a long time, live there from there, they just ignore the kids. And you're like, you're such an, oh, how dare you ignore the kids? And then you're, you know, if you give them money, you're enabling that whole system. But then again, continue. Mad, they'll get beaten if they don't get money. I mean, it's just such a, you don't, I mean, it's yeah. more complicated than you could handle in that moment. You can't right. fix it right. with, I'm not fixing it with right. food or anything. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. All right. I feel like I made it worse, but okay. <laughs> First of all, I don't see the problem, right? Like, here's the things, like little notes I wrote, like what you did really well. You aligned with shared values. Even if mm-hmm. you guys were like not on the same page, you found what I would call like a lot of common ground in the approach to a, an issue. And you use something that is probably natural to you, but use a lot of affirmation, right? Like you, mm-hmm. So you were like really, um, you would listen, affirm, find the commonality of the issue or the viewpoint even though you may not share like his end result on the outcome of his thoughts, right? But I don't, the only thing that you did that I would say, and this is a casual conversation you're having, not necessarily like a session with somebody, but just we don't interrupt, like Uh. let a person finish their thought. But you guys have very similar energy. I could see where you get some of your personality from. Like he's a very big personality guy, right? He looked really into the conversation, but I think you didn't trigger a lot of him and what you were saying. You know, you found a way to interject, but without, I didn't, feel like you ever accused him or you gave examples like third person examples of things that's pretty smart because you dr samina actually did this thing where he recorded people like a criminal and then him and the, the guy the patient would look at this video of the patient and they would talk about the patient on the screen as if they weren't talking about the guy sitting right next to him. and what you recognize is it lowers the defenses and being able to address the issue mm. right so the doctor would be like so the guy on the screen is saying so he's talking about this guy in third person like he's not sitting there yeah. and then the guy starts talking about himself in third person like he's not him right but it allowed them to have real discussion you know about like hey so what do you think about the guy on the screen saying you know like the lady basically deserved what happened to her and he was like oh I can see how he was like it was versus you said and then he gets defensive and tries he has to protect his image yes yeah I feel like if I don't you know there's a thing like if you don't I feel like I'm not I'm moving the conversation away from like
like some of the core issues, you know, like you're like obviously very quick to attack men of color for making money on their career while you let off the hook all of the white people who are, have been making money for generations. So I feel like I'm not like, you know, I'm just like, let's, let's agree. We hate everyone. (laughs) Here's the thing. You're taking on like this global narrative, like his, his approach to the universe, right? You're trying to take that on. You can't really take that on without a a significant amount of listening sessions, right? Like more than one listening session, right? Because Mm -hmm. he's going to, what we normally do with our defensiveness is teach people how to take our test, right? Mm -hmm. Because then if you, if you interject too much, they're going back to this idea, I'm going to say what you think you want to hear from me versus actually hearing like the full version of their real thoughts. So you often got to let them, like I'll tell you in my practice, I never had a harder time doing this than when I was working with sex offenders, because I would have to listen to their rationale to an assault. And, you know, you're hearing things that are very just hard and painful and ugly to hear. And I've heard it, of course, with, I think actually this is just me. It's easier for me to listen to somebody who has murdered someone and how they got to that point than it is with some of these sexual assaults. Like I have a harder time listening to the sexual assaults, right? So, but I, I've learned what you do is, so to your point, the moral or the value in communication is do not concede, but do not condemn, Mm. right? And so having a conversation in that spirit is difficult enough, but you often need to let them go unchallenged with their story and their narrative so that you can take all the details and facts and statements that you need to review without you being a censor for them. Because when you interject, you start censoring them and then they learn how to censor themselves. So by listening, several things are happening. You're developing a relationship of trust and mutual respect because you're listening and they know what you're listening to is egregious. They know this and they know that nobody else listens to that. So mm-hmm. you kind of got a captive audience, no pun intended with my case, you know, where you're listening to someone, but they're like, wow, they're listening. And remember, they don't have the filters or the ability to censor between how ludicrous it sounds once somebody starts listening. Because you're listening, they think there's some sort of alignment, mm. that sense of alignment, right? Because you're listening. Yeah. So, because what do most people do? Hear something ludicrous, be like, holy shit, that's fucked up. Like, what do you mean? Like, excuse my language, right? But like, we normally censor them for them. Yeah. And then that makes me so mad at myself because, like, I'm letting them think I align, but I'm like, I don't, I, in my heart, am so angry, you know? But the best thing you can do is allow them to expose themselves. It's different when they do it themselves than when you do it for them, right? Mm. Because when you circle back to that that point of conjecture, right? Like when you get back to that, you're introducing to them into their own logic. It's very Socratic in nature, right? You lead them back to their own logic and they themselves have to point out the ludicrousness of it because that's very different than you pointing it out, Uh. right? Because what they're doing in this conversation is exposing identity and identity is very vulnerable. And so when you see identity and you you attack identity, they're not thinking that you've attacked their point they're thinking you've attacked them as first mm. right but they have to make their point they have to be able to put it out there and you're going to win brownie points right part of what you get when you listen is permission mm. permission to interject at some point but when you're not listening and you're conversating or debating you never have permission which means that the psyche never really has opened up to what you have to say but when you've listened when you've done a good job listening you've almost forced them to have to give you permission to be heard yes that's a psychological trick right like you yeah. Listening opens them up to hearing what you have to say now that you've listened. Got it. So it's almost like you, because I like when I'm in those situations, I'm like trying to just appeal to common humanity. Like, in no, that's your ego. That's yeah. your ego. That's your yeah, ego, yeah. right? 
So I remember there was a guy who was leaving. He was going to leave town and he was going to leave his kid behind. And I got into this 45-minute session with him on reasons why he should stay. When I staffed this case with my supervisor, she said, whose values were you tapping into, right? Not that she didn't agree with me that he should stay. Of course, that's common sense, right? You're leaving a kid behind. But in the conversation, I was imposing my values, which is what created the battle. It wasn't his. In my notes, it said he was non-receptive, when in reality, I was the one who was non-receptive. Yeah, I gotcha. Gotcha. So I right? mean, in then, some ways, like when you're working with people who like, who are, you know, he's watching these specials about how homeless people are duplicitous and, mm-hmm. you know, just having these feelings about like what, he doesn't even understand what reparations mean or what, what it's coming from, but like obviously just being against it and like demonizing people before we even talk about the issue. Like it's about just giving them all space to like talk and talk and talk like about why they feel this way and then just try to interject like, or not interject, but again, then coming in with like, you know, why don't we think about this? Or what do you think about this? See that question right there. What do you think about, right? That is a way to make a statement that is posed as a question, which doesn't trigger defensiveness, right? Uh Like the defensiveness is what you're trying to avoid. Because once you trigger that, the conversation is pretty much mute and point, right? Because you're you're not going to get anywhere because you've run into the wall now. You can recover from that, you know, And, and there are ways to recover from that in that same. But when you say, you know, like, what if I had a different way of looking at this? Would you be willing to hear that? Yeah, right? I hear that. Because yeah. that permission, that, and it doesn't have to be that complex. It's just like, you know, like, I'd like to share something. Like, you know, I'm hearing you and it made me have this thought, right? You evoke curiosity in what you say when you don't come out with it right away. Because yeah. then they'll ask you, well, what do you mean? Those little Jedi mm-hmm. tricks are like what allow a person to put down their defensiveness because you've intrigued them. Remember, you, a car salesman telling telling you which car you're going to buy is different than a car salesman saying which car would you like to buy and you know which car you want him to buy but you have to get him there making him think it was his choice and you can't do that with ego or imposing your views or condemning you just don't get there that way yeah I feel like part yeah some of it is leaving your ego behind but I do like I do know this for certain that is like when you know I went to a fancy school and had fancy people come be around where I grew up in like Queens and the thing that like irked them the most was like it's not what you think it's that you think you're better than me like this smug self-satisfied look like I'm so smart and you don't know anything is just I don't think people realize like how much that turns a lot of people off to the movement like and it's a thing that I, I really try to avoid. And yet I feel like when I'm having conversations, people don't give me credit. Like I'm doing a lot of work. I'm to have this podcast. I like, you know, I'm been in, interested in social justice for a very long time. And so I just, you know, I went to a good school. Like I did all these things, but yet like a lot of people don't even respect that. So then it's like, you want respect and yet you don't want to do that, to be a uh, cavalier. That's- what is your ultimate goal in fighting for these social justice movements? I mean, the ultimate goal is just to, well, I guess to promote greater equality overall. Yeah. And so you will find out if you're, and I think that's what you're rubbing up against right now is that it is a thankless job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is so much that I do that will never be known, but so many things and so many people I've reached and touched that I just, I will never talk about, you know, I let others do the talking and it is a thankless job. Some of the very same people I've helped have turned around to not be thankful. You know, and to remember what your higher calling is, which was to improve this space, to improve the world, the conditions that people face. That's what motivates you. You know, mm-hmm. that's what mo- I remember. My daughter we used to hand out uh, food baskets every year. 
year. And we used to do about 50 families for Thanksgiving, another 50 for Christmas. And there were times when people wouldn't even say thank you. There were times when people would just say, leave it on the front porch. Like, you know, I couldn't even get the respect of a thank you. And then I remember my daughter says, why do we do this if, if people aren't even grateful? She was only like nine or 10 when she asked that question. And I said, well, first of all, this basket is not even a finger in the dam compared to what other issues they're facing. Mm-hmm. It's such a temporary relief that their world may be on fire and this little thing that I'm doing for them may not have the impact we would like to have. Like it's, yes, it's this, but they're already on to the next battle. Like we just don't know. I was just trying to express empathy for why a person might not respond. And I said, on the other side of that, you know, a person may not know how to interpret our act. You know, we, mm-hmm. we didn't really, you know, have time to explain to them what our intentions were. They, so they, if, if you're already untrusting, just because I'm showing up with a pure heart doesn't mean I fall into a trustworthy category. I said, the third thing is we're not doing it so that they can be grateful. Mm-hmm. You know, like, let's remember that. Like we're doing it because we want to contribute in some way. This is us and me and you know we're doing this and that's what matters. Because I want you to grow up and remember these that we reach out. You know, and so it, in many ways it is thankless, but that's not the reason. And I know that's not what you're implying. It's, it's not the reason we do it. So when those mm-hmm. solemn nights hit you when you realize like people don't really seem to recognize how hard you're working, it's more important that you recognize that and you know that your mm-hmm. motivations stay pure, you know. And you do have fans, you do know that. So pay attention to them. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like sometimes my fans are nicer to me than my family. Like, what the fuck? But I guess well, you know, the, yeah. and you know, I have an 18 year old daughter right now, and there are people in her life who support her better in some spaces than I do. I'm trying to love her, but I do know she identifies yeah. with certain people in a different way than she can with her dad. You know, I'm 51 years old; she's 18. I mean, we can only identify so much after this point. You know? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But underneath it, I'm sure that you guys love each other. Yes, and that's the that's the undercurrent that uh, keeps me with with all. You're lucky because I don't even have that. I don't. I don't have parents. You know, I don't mm. have. I don't have a loving mother. I don't have a loving father. And mm. here I am, being trying to be a loving parent. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you're you're always you and your daughter are welcome around our dinner table anytime. Uh, if you don't mind screaming Italians. <laughs> I, you know what, we're I'm more than willing. I will. I thank you for that. that's really kind. And you know, I think ultimately what I want you to remember. You asked what was the good news, right? Is that when there's two of us, we're likely to bring two more people to this space. Mm. So, so between your work and this message that we're sharing, there will be others that come to this space. And we have to collect each other. And that's what I feel like you're doing right now through your podcast. Mm. You're mm-hmm. collecting good people who we need at the table because that's how you restore balance, right? You bring more and more people to the cause. I don't think we can win the civil rights battle, like per se, like we get to a point of victory. But I do think it's a point we can lose, like if we're not careful. And so at best, I think at most, we need to maintain the balance. We need to have at least an equal number of voices countering all that rhetoric, all that ideology that is against us. We need people at the forefront. You amplifying voices like you're doing right now and mm-hmm. using their own voice to mm-hmm. leverage whatever privilege they have to the benefit of the space. Yep. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And thank you. Thank you, Sammy. It's a monumental work. And where can people catch up with Life After Hate and your work? So um, we're lifeafterhate.org. We're, we got good social media on Twitter, and Instagram. I think we're stronger on Twitter though. You know, like that's where a lot of the headspace for this stuff exists. Facebook. I'm on Facebook. People can connect with me. I see all your books back there. So I'm going to, I need you to 
send me where I can mail you my book so my book can make your shelf. Oh, great. I love it. And I got to mail you. We'll, we'll exchange books. I'm going to mail you my uh, book inside Melania. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. I'll read it. But I'm easy to find. I'm, we're all, you know, I'm very, very public. I'm not hiding. So yeah. Sammy Rangel on Facebook or Life After Hate. We're, you know, yeah. easy to find. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sammy. And uh, best of luck as we move towards the election and, and everything else coming up with the pandemic. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and I wouldn't be too concerned about the outcome, right? Things aren't going to change that much, even if we get a new president in the next four years, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if we've made it this far, we can make it the rest of the way. Okay. But let's maybe, well, let's you're, you're non-political in this way. You have to be, but I'm going to say, yes, let's, let's make it easier for us. I, w- I would love that. Yes. I would love that yeah. with you. I'm <laughs> so behind that. Now. Let's make it easier. But at the same time, I just want people to know, man, like we can't get distracted, you know? And right now we're dealing with so many distractions. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's not like people who've been radicalized are going to like change overnight, you know, just that's not the damage is there. So No, but they do change, you know, and yes. that's what these messages mean. They people do change. So Melania, are you going to do any listening sessions with Donald? All I can do now is listen. He'll be done with his tantrum all the way in 2022. And then maybe I can get the word in if I'm still around. For the rest of us, let's think about this. The far-right exploited the pandemic to terrorize vulnerable communities. Far-right groups are stealing recruitment techniques from ISIS. The work continues. The election outcome does not change that people have been radicalized. Having the necessary dialogue with radicalized people means doing more listening than you might be comfortable with, and then injecting some personal stories and counterpoints. And it takes many of these conversations to start to see change. It's a slow process. Oh my God, do we have work to do. Let me know what you think. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. Second, I want to tell you that you can follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logie. And do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. And also on my website, you can find out some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is out, including the audiobook, which is done in the voices of all of the characters in my head. Thank you to our sponsor, TheMelaniaShow.com. For irreverent merchandise, including Trump Off Soap, go to TheMelaniaShow.com. Get yours today. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this than by reading the headlines. So Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. My Donald is spreading misinformation about election fraud. Oh, he does have a great imagination. Corona cases more than ever and lockdowns around the world. U.S. formally exits Paris Agreement for the climate of the change. But (laughs) I don't care. Do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing. To Devin Edwards for creating the intro. Christopher Catalano for the voiceover. Mandy McLennan for making the podcast art. And a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Sammy Rangel for being such a wonderful guest. See you in March.